Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, analyse the election of the new pro-NATO president of the Czech Republic, Petro Pavel, and we look at how the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has made geopolitical waves across the world, from Argentina to Japan. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 30th of January, day 341. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and our Europe editor, James Crisp. I started by asking Dom to talk us through the latest news from Ukraine. It's been a busy weekend in, uh, in Ukraine. So on Sunday, there was a, another Russian missile attack on Kharkiv, so the northeast of the country, Ukraine's second city. A missile attack there, which hit a four-storey residential building and uh, a hospital. Reports at least one killed, others injured. Those reports are still coming in. The building, the four-storey building, was partially destroyed. There are still rescue operations going on there. The uh, The hospital received minor damage from what we can see, but still uh, reports are a bit sketchy. But yeah, another, uh, more reports from, um, from Kharkiv. Fire, uh, there's fire was still ongoing the last I saw from there. Uh, again, no no military point to this. It's just uh, it's just brutality. It doesn't. It's not part of any wider plan from Russia. There's no suggestion no, that they have the ability to push down into the into the northeast of Ukraine again, or that they that they wish to try and do anything of a of a sensible military from a sensible military perspective. There, this is just attacking what they can where they can uh, with what they've got, which is which is not a lot left of, of precision guided munitions. Hence, hence these things are just th- thrown all over the place, hoping to break the Ukrainian spirit. Um, so that doesn't seem to be happening at all, but still uh, still civilian infrastructure and civilian buildings being hit um, across the country. Elsewhere, President Zelensky said on his Sunday night a video, a video address to the country, said that the situation in Donetsk is, is very difficult uh, and he's calling for more or faster supplies of, of weapons and different types of weaponry. Uh, and he said, the quote is, he said that the situation is very tough. Bakhmut, Vuladar and other sectors in Donetsk region, they are under constant Russian attacks. 
Russia wants the war to drag on and exhaust our forces, so we have to make time our weapon. We have to speed up events, speed up supplies and open up new weapon options for Ukraine. So, uh, unquote. So I think that's a that's a fair summation there. And if the if President Zelensky is saying that it's that it's tough, in fact, moving around that area, then um, then you, I mean, they 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 don't. We we think it's been going on for nearly a year now. We 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 don't think beyond the normal rounds of trying to keep up civilian morale and what have you. We don't think Ukraine out and out blatantly you know lies about this stuff. Um, they are of course cautious with the information they put out there. Not only they don't want to give suckers to the enemy, but they don't want to uh, they don't want to dent morale where they can. But they have been very good at, at situating the, um, the the context and, and the war for the population, so that there isn't a huge um, a huge sort of shock to society, a huge shock to the to the um, to the to the, a psychological shock to the to the those fighting and the and the civilians. So. Now, he's putting this in context here in Donetsk, saying it's difficult, saying that, that they need more weapons. He's named a couple of places, Bakhmut and Volodar. So I think, yes, it's looking extremely uh, tough there. I mean, there's huge, huge casualties um, with, on the Russian side. We think that's the one that's, that, that's the side that's easier to correlate any kind of casualty information. But we think also Ukraine is, is, is having a you know, very, very tough fight there. So I think it's interesting one to watch there that President Zelensky is, is drawing particular attention to that area and saying it, it's difficult, calling for more weapons and a faster delivery of, of, uh, of, of existing weapons pledges. Thank you uh, very much for that, Tom. We've had a, an important election in the centre of Europe. I'd like you all to comment on the election of the new president of the Czech Republic, of Czechia. Uh, James, you are a Europe editor. Would you talk us through maybe the top lines here? Yeah, uh, basically, the uh, presidential election was a runoff between two men. Uh, these two men couldn't really be more different vision of uh, the Czech Republic's future that they were presenting and and also the Ukraine policy. Uh, the first guy, Andrei Babish. Andrei Babish used to be prime minister. I suppose if I was going to describe him, I'd... I think I'd probably call him one of Europe's mini Trumps. You know, he's a billionaire businessman. He took at one point to wearing a red baseball cap, much like Donald Trump. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, quite a lot of talk about just how honest he is and how trustworthy an individual he is. Uh, he was recently acquitted of defrauding the EU of a substantial amount of money, which meant he could run in this election. But basically, we're talking about a billionaire populist. Um, Babish, is for his, this was quite a close race, but as, as we got to the, the final days, Babish began to sort of try and pluck a few leaves from the Orban playbook. Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, kind of basically is one of Europe's soft underbellies uh, for Vladimir Putin. You know, he says, oh, we shouldn't have sanctions against Russia. Oh, you know, nothing should be done which would allow the war to 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 escalate. Uh, he's even signed new gas deals with Moscow after the invasion uh, of Ukraine. Now, Babish began to sort of come up with some of this same language. You know, I would never want to send our boys to war to die. You know, Czech Republic's a NATO member, like Hungary, right? Where which means you've got to. Uh, uh, it's it's all for one and one for all under Article 5. And Babish called that into question. And, you know, that did get some traction. But now you have to compare that with the new president, uh, Petr Pavel. And um, Petr Pavel is a retired 
NATO general. So really, you couldn't get any more symbolically different and more uh, richly symbolic of Czech voters' desire to anchor themselves in the West uh, as part of this alliance against Russia, rather than as this kind of sort of more uh, populist firebrand, more Putin-friendly regime. And, you know, this new uh, president really sort of heralds kind of a return for the Czech Republic after some years of being in the wilderness, uh, mainly because of the leadership of people like Babish, uh, to the kind of pro-Western country that we remember back from the Velvet Revolution. And in fact, there was a nice, nice detail. People were chanting Pavel to the castle, the presidential castle, uh, which was uh, a direct sort of echo of how they used to chant Havel to the castle about Vaclav Havel, you know, the famous uh, author and uh, later president of the Czech Republic, the reformist leader. So, you know, it's good news, basically, from the Czech Republic. Thank you very much, James, for that. Um, Dom, just very quickly, if he was a former NATO general, did you ever come across, come across him or his influence at all? And uh, what would you like to add to what James has said? Now, I mean, there are one or two uh, NATO generals that, uh, that have yet to grace my inbox or the other way around. Um, so, no, I've not come across Peter Pavel before. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he, former army, Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, then Czech Republic, Czechia, uh, chief of staff. And now a, uh, it was NATO's second in command. So he's got he's got a great, a great military uh, background. And as James was saying, the, the, the war in Ukraine uh, featured highly in this in this election campaign but also i mean more more than that it's interesting that he that he was elected and, and quite and with the with the majority so over 58 percent they voted for him nearly a million votes nationwide more than uh than his than his opponent in the second round of voting it was tighter in the first round but there were more more um, more people in it then but you know he he's a serious guy he has seen um well firstly this the rebuff of of his rival the populist rival I think is is telling this this and I think Francis is going to pick up later on this this per- perceived drift towards um, populism uh, from Eastern Europe. This this is a, this stands counter to that and, and rightly so. But also, I mean the fact that he so in 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 the Czech Republic there's been the military profession has not massively been held in in high esteem and this. This election could be seen as, as bucking a, a fairly historical trend because after, uh, so the first post-communist president, Václav Havel, he was yeah he was a serious guy, but then after that, it seems to have taken a bit of a bit of a dip with um, being seen as either too keen to bash the European Union or the European project, and then um, the last guy, or the guy that's standing down now that Pavel's is going to be replacing, um, is seen as a fairly controversial figure and too close to Russia and China, these kind of things. So this is this is a. This is a a return to the uh, to the to the centre, not geographic centre, but in terms of politics, really for for the Czech Republic, and and also signals, I think, a shift eastwards of the the geopolitical centre in terms of security in Europe. Um, we can talk about you know, quite what France and Germany and Britain have, have hoped to uh, to get out of european security architecture since the end of the cold war but you know things are moving east here and pavel one of the first things he said was that he's going to his what his first visit is going to be to poland which is which is somewhat remarkable and it just just underlines where the where the move is is here now czech republic the first country to supply tanks to ukraine t-72s 
Um, and Pavel was clear throughout his campaign about the need to stand up against Russian, this Russian aggression and, uh, and support Ukraine. So this is seen not only as a, as a rebuff to the, the sort of more Russia-centric view of the world and the populist view of the world, but this is seen that, that the Czech Republic, after, after a bit of hiatus after Vaclav Havel, is back and being able to, uh, to take a, a sensible, pragmatic, grown-up, part of the European security architecture uh, and also a, and a guy who, who understands the need for for heavy metal and and hard politics here. So, yeah, I, I think it's quite quite interesting what's happened here and where, and especially with the size of the vote for all that that means. But Francis will be able to uh, expand more on that. I mean, I just want to quickly sort of jump in and sort of point out, but, you know, you've got countries like Austria as well, who sometimes seem a little bit too sort of Russian friendly. All of those sort of Central and Eastern European countries, the members of the Visegrad group, all of whom, but some, some people might be looking at them and thinking, you know, are they the first, the first line of those to waver? Now we've had something like this. You know, that sort of stiffens uh, the resolve among uh, other members, I'd say. As you said, you know, uh, there's this move uh, to be to the east, uh, uh, a move west by the east, if you like, Dom. And I mean, look, let's be honest. He looks good. You know, this is a guy who uh, Twitter has been ablaze, gushing over this man's sort of distinguished good looks. He uh, can be emblematic of a, he says the right things, uh, he looks for part. And I mean, you know, that's important. It's only going to sort of leave Hungary looking more isolated. Thanks, James and Dom. Francis, can I come to you? Can can you put the Czech election in some context for us? I mean, we've had quite a few important and serious European elections over the last year. Thanks, David. Yes, I think this is the really most important side of this in many ways, which is I think that if you were as we speculated about many months ago, I think the calculation in Moscow was that the longer the war went on, the more that the consensus about the pro-Ukrainian support amongst European capitals and amongst European populations would begin to, if not fade, would just inevitably begin to drift somewhat. And that as a consequence of the energy crisis or the purported belief that there would be this severe energy crisis as a consequence of, of winter, that inevitably when people were given a chance to vote at the the ballot box, they would naturally vote for more oppositional parties. And that would, by the very nature of the situation at the moment, be perhaps a little bit more sceptical on some of the support for Ukraine. But actually, as you say, if, we've lo- if we look at all of the major elections that there have been in the past year, so thinking France, thinking Italy, now Czechia, they are all still voting for people who are very, very strongly in favour of supporting Ukraine. There were alternative options available, and that has not happened. And if that continues, that trend, then that will, I think, be a major, major blow to Moscow's thinking about this. In Their whole calculation now for months has been thinking, as I say, that the longer this war goes on, the stronger their hand becomes politically. Now, that may still be true. We don't yet know what's going to happen in the coming months and you know, possibly longer. But nonetheless, this has big ramifications for their support uh, in, within Europe, for the, the, any kind of chance of there being a reduction in military supplies for Ukraine, for political support and all of these things. And it, this stuff matters. So I think that's the really most significant side of this is that it fits into a pattern that we're seeing, which is that across Europe, across the West at the moment, there remains 
a very, very solid democratic support for Ukraine. Now, a caveat to that would be that we haven't seen elections in Germany. We haven't seen elections in uh, in certain other more sceptical countries, shall we say, on the line of, of how to support Ukraine moving forward. If we had, and they're not expected anytime soon, but if we had, we may have seen the ground shifting. I saw quite a surprising poll over the weekend where there are still, it's still a common theme in German polling that many, many Germans don't, do not feel comfortable with the feeling of of this war being escalated with the West providing tanks and this anxiety that enough has already been done and the dangers that actually many people feel that, that too much is being done. So I don't want to make it sound as if there, there is just a continuing wave of support. I think there are some countries that are a little bit more wobbly on this, but the broad trend as we see at the moment totally goes against what many, many people believed and particularly in the Kremlin. And that, that matters. Well, thank you, Francis, James and Dom. Let's move on. James, can I come to you? You've written a very interesting story for us on some of the issues that Ireland is finding uh, with uh, supporting refugees from Ukraine. Um, We haven't spoken about Ireland much on the podcast. Can you talk us through your reporting? What have you found? So um, Ireland's a really interesting case. I I went over to Dublin last year now, shortly after the uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine, and, you know, it's important to bear in mind that Ireland is, is quite a small country, uh, especially in comparison to, to Britain. But their welcome to Ukrainian refugees has really been uh, incredibly warm and incredibly admirable, you know, as, as has been the case in many, uh, many countries such as Poland as well. But if you think about the distances involved, uh, the size of Ireland, the fact that it's you know, historically not dealt with uh, numbers like this uh, before. It is, of course, historically a country of emigration rather than immigration. So there's a sort of a cultural shift there. Uh, But there, you know, I was struck actually speaking to people in Dublin at that time, you know, how willing people were to to sort of open their hearts and and homes and and wallets, frankly, uh, to the Ukrainians. Now, a year or so has gone past since then. And things have begun to get a little bit more difficult. Uh, So more than 70,000 Ukrainians have arrived in Ireland uh, since the invasion in February. Now, 52,000 of those have had to be put up by the state in state accommodation. And that's mostly been in hotels. Now, you've got to bear in mind that Ireland has long struggled with a housing crisis anyway. Its asylum system, you know, just has never been designed for this kind of numbers of people. And uh, long story short, last week, the government said, you know, it could no longer provide shelter for those seeking international protection. And that's been a while coming. You know, they've, uh, they didn't want to set up camp style accommodation in sports halls, etc. They had to in the end. Uh, anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a meeting being held tomorrow by the Cabinet Committee on Ukraine. Uh, The Irish Times has got a readout of what's going to be discussed in that meeting. And it looks like they're going to be discussing the possibility of putting a time limit on how long refugees from Ukraine can claim free accommodation. Now, that is uh, a bit of a shift. Uh, That would be justified by saying that other EU countries do the same thing. And that Ireland is kind of an outlier because it's relied on hotel accommodation so much. Many of those hotel contracts are coming up. So... Dublin's looking for alternatives. Um, And, you know, there is a a certain amount of truth behind that. I mean, if we take Poland, for example, they recently tightened their rules so that 
refugees from Ukraine will be expected to pay for half their accommodation costs after living in state housing for more than 120 days. And that comes in in May. Uh, there's been a drop in the number of Ukrainian refugees arriving in Ireland. Uh, it's down to about 58 a day. In December, it was 170. So people are still coming, but they seem to also be listening to a call from the Irish government to put their plans to travel on Ireland on hold if it is safe to do so and if they possibly can. Um, I, I mean, I think what sort of struck me the most uh, when I was in uh, Dublin first reporting on this story, I went to the Russian embassy and there were people outside picketing the Russian embassy. And when the ambassador came in, you know, they surged forward. They actually hit his car and called him a Nazi, told him to get out. Uh, it was quite striking. These were basically retired primary school teachers. And I haven't seen a primary school teacher that angry since I was a, a primary school pupil. Um, I mean, I just sort of say, I think, you know, we're now beginning to see anti-refugee protests in Ireland, uh, which is quite rare. People are saying things like Ireland is full, enough is enough. And, you know, while that's something which, you know, we might be more familiar with, it is happening in Ireland, but at the same time, there are counter-protests as well. I think it's a really interesting case. I mean, we're talking about 5 million people in the whole country. You know, they're sort of heartfelt welcome to the Ukrainians. I've, I've found very moving when I spoke to people who were doing it. Uh, but I sort of wonder if, you know, reality is beginning to bite a little bit. And um, I suppose that's inevitable, but it's also a bit sad. One thing I think it's only fair to sort of point out, but certainly in the beginning uh, of this whole crisis, you know, the Irish response uh, to uh, Ukrainian refugees really did put Britain to shame. And I think that's worth uh, pointing out. You know, they, they far outdid us uh, in those early days. And, you know, as I've sort of seemed to be faintly critical, but I did think it was worth pointing out. No, absolutely. Thank you very much, James. And just and apologies for interrupting you there. Just to finish that thought, um, if you are in Ireland, uh, do let us know your experiences. As James said, you know, it's not something we've covered massively on this podcast, but uh, James's reporting has gone some way, I think, uh, to, to doing that. Thank you very much, James, for coming on. Uh, Francis, can I come to you? There's a whole host of um, other diplomatic updates we'd like to talk about. Um, we've obviously spoken about the election of the new Czech president, but there's quite a few other things to talk about. Would you Would you lead us through them? Thank you, David. There's an extraordinary amount going on, but I want to start with a new three-part BBC documentary series titled Putin versus the West, which features interviews with several senior figures from the British side, from the Ukrainian side, amongst others. And there have been some quite interesting revelations that have come out from this, including one of our lead stories today and in many other British papers, which is an exchange that Boris Johnson is said to have had or claims to have had with Vladimir Putin. So it's a little bit complicated, but essentially this is all going back to when Boris Johnson visited Kiev in early February last year, just before the invasion and the conversations that were had with Putin immediately afterwards. And the way that Boris, jo Boris Johnson describes it is a long and most extraordinary call. So what happens is, is that Boris has visited there and in this call with Putin, Johnson says that there will be much tougher Western sanctions if Putin invaded Ukraine and if Russian aggression 
were to go down the path that many believed, which of course was the subsequent invasion. And he predicted that Western support would intensify and there would be more NATO, not less NATO, on the Russian borders if Putin were to go ahead with his invasion. Putin's response to this was, Boris, you say that Ukraine is not going to join NATO anytime soon. What is anytime soon? Boris says that he replied, well, it's not going to join NATO for the foreseeable future. You know that perfectly well. Putin then responded, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but with a missile, it would only take a minute. Then Boris Gonchon continues, I think from the very relaxed tone that he was taking, the sort of air of detachment that he seemed to have, he was just playing along with my attempts to get him to negotiate. But nonetheless, this is a very revealing exchange, I think, if it's true, because it speaks to the kind of way that Putin thought about the war and was thinking about the war in dialogues with certain European leaders at the time. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But you can imagine the kind of headlines that we've had here in Britain of people saying that you know, Putin threatened to kill Boris Johnson with a missile. I think it is more complicated than that. But nonetheless, uh, it's, I think, interesting that it could even be conceivably mentioned in a conversation. Uh, quite extraordinary. Ben Wallace is the next person who is in this documentary that's worthy of um, us commenting on a little bit further. So he talks about the meeting that he went to in Moscow two weeks prior to the invasion. And I believe our very own Dom Nichols was there. It's be really interesting hearing his memories of this trip shortly. But it talks about the exchanges that he had with the then Minister of Defence, Sergei Shoigu, and the head of Russia's armed forces. Now, of course, the overall commander of the war in Ukraine, uh, um, Mr. Grazimov, of course, we've spoken about at length. And Ben Wallace just talks about the... Uh, the sense that he got that this war was going to happen and some of the extraordinary exchanges that happened. I think some of these he's already relayed in previous interviews, but he goes into a little bit more detail. So he talks about how Shoigu said, they will not fight. Uh, my mother is Ukrainian. They won't fight. The defense secretary then replied um, that uh, he would question this. And then Shoigu said he also said that he had no intention of invading. Ben Wallace continues, it was the fairly chilling but direct lie of what they were not going to do that I think to me confirmed that they were going to do it. And then uh, General Krasimov also said, or, or in addition to the comments by Sergei Shoigo said, never again will we be humiliated. We used to be the fourth army in the world. We're now number two. It's now America and us. And Mr. Wallace says it was in that moment and in that minute that the sense of potentiality of why they were doing this became apparent. So again, very interesting insights from him, which would rally with, with tally, sorry, with what we've been uh, reporting now for a while. And then finally, uh, President Zelensky himself makes certain remarks in the documentary about conversations he had with Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, effectively pleading with him to do more, for NATO to do more to prevent the invasion. So Zelensky says, I told him, Jens, I want to join NATO. Do you see us in NATO? Because nothing would defend our country except for actual membership. He continued, it's just unfair and not nice. You don't see us as equals. I, and this is Zelensky talking about what he said to him. I told him that our army is ready, our society is ready, and I believe that NATO is not ready. If you know that tomorrow Russia will occupy Ukraine, why don't you give me something today I can stop it with? Or if you can't give it to me, then stop it yourself. 
just speaks, I think, to the urgent conversations that were taking place at incredibly high levels in those days prior to the invasion, which would, of course, would speak to what we've covered at the podcast now uh, for months, that as more of these kind of revelations out, you really get the sense of panic um, within Ukraine itself, but also uh, the disparate opinions within the European alliance, if we can articulate it in that way, uh, about how to handle Ukraine and who actually believed that an invasion was likely. Britain believed an invasion was likely. America believed an invasion was likely. Baltic states believed an invasion was likely. Other prominent powers, France, Germany, did not and were more sceptical. And that played a key role, I think, as to what may have happened in senior conversations within NATO and in the European Union. But I'll take a pause there because it'd be interesting to hear Dom's reflections on some of this because Dom was there. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, some of Ben Wallace's comments on the documentary. Dom, you were with him on that trip uh, just before the the full-scale invasion. What do you remember of that? Um, What can you add to that? Yeah, it was quite a remarkable day. I mean, and, and it was only one day. We weren't going to overnight in um, in Russia, in Moscow, and, uh, and Ben Wallace had to get back for other other bits and bobs. So we had to had to report to an RAF base at a, well, just after midnight, and we were back just before midnight that day. So it was a it was a long old day, but um, we went out there, and of course, all the this was about ten days. I think it was exactly ten days before the February twenty fourth assault, and I remember speaking to Ben Wallace, defence secretary, and saying to him. In all likelihood, all the suggestions then were, uh, well, not all the suggestions, that's unfair, but there was a, there was a strong opinion, which turned out to, to be correct, that Russia was was going to invade and all this uh, this posturing on the border and all these exercises and what have you was, was just nonsense. And I, I said to Ben, I said, you know, you, you are... You are potentially setting yourself up for a fall here. You're going out there as the, as the as the sort of idiot minister to be lied to and so on and so forth. When, and he he was fairly clear with us that uh, that he thought there was going to be an invasion, and and he said, well, yeah, he accepts that. He said, but you got to try. If there's any any way at all of stopping a war, even if you look a little bit foolish, and in whose eyes do you look foolish? Um, the Russians and fine. Do, 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 you, do you care about their opinion? So he he was he was very clear that it was probably a hiding to nothing, but you've got to try. And it was it was probably the last, the last, mo- the the final, most senior diplomatic intervention from um, from anyone outside outside of uh, of Russia, I think. But it was interesting. So before we went, I was um, I spoke to a friend of mine who is a um, is an, an expert on. On Russia, and I said, "What do I look out for to see how how seriously Wallace is being taken and this um, and the party?" Because he was with a number of civil servants and uh, some military people and so on and so forth. The chief of the defence staff, for example, went out, um, and some others. So it was a, a small party, maybe a, maybe a dozen or so. And I said, "What said to my friend? What do I look for to see how how this is being how be, being received?" And he said, "Look, it's all about how the Russians treat you." So. Um, I can't remember the names of the of the of the two big airports just in, in Russia, but he said they are both a nightmare to get into the centre of the city. But one is much further out. He said, if where do you, where are you allowed to land? Are you allowed to land in the airport nearer the city, so you're slightly less inconvenienced, or are you are you pushed out right out into the suburbs? Secondly, when you then dr- uh, drive into the centre of town, uh, you'll undoubtedly have a have a, a blue light escort from the the Russian security services. That's you know, to be expected anyway. But are you allowed to use the middle lane? So in the, in the Russian highways, you've got the middle lane that's for senior government officials and uh, security services and what have you, and it's empty. And the, the traffic in Moscow is horrific. And then there's this there's this clear middle lane. 
So are you snarled up in all the traffic or are you given the given the honor of going down going down the middle lane? Um, when you before you before you sorry before you even get to that that stage, when you clear passport control, are you mucked around and you have your passports are, are taken off you for ages and you're messed around and all that kind of stuff? Um, and I have to say, we were everything that I was told to look out for. We were given sort of top notch top notch treatment, so you know there was no hassle at all at passport control. The only slight anomaly was that this was this was in the sort of tail end of Russia's COVID lockdown and all the rest of it. So, so for their uh, for their COVID uh, compliance, we all had to go and give a swab. I mean, everybody that was the that was the the restriction on entry to the to the country. So yes, my biometric data is on some bloody Excel sheet right now in Moscow. But hey, that's that's what I've got to live with for the rest of my life. Um, but apart from that, yes, we were accorded every every respect, even the journalists. We were um, you know, accorded respect from the from the uh, Russian authorities. We went to the Kremlin. Ben Wallace was invited to leave uh, a wreath at the tomb of the uh, tomb of the, the unknown warrior outside the Kremlin, and uh, we went to the Russian Ministry of Defence. And although they went off to have their meetings, which is on the documentary, the bit that Ben Wallace is talking about, and uh, we were we were shepherded in, into a into a separate room. Myself, I was with a, a, a colleagues, friends, and colleagues from the Times. Um, one from the Times, one from the Mail. And my friend from the Times had her phone hacked while we were in the in the adjoining room. Uh, but apart from that, it was all all went uh, all went swimmingly. I had to have a, a an escort. Two people had to accompany me to the toilet. And if you know if you're, if you're ever going to get stage fright, so when there's two large Russians with guns stood next to you, but I managed it, and that was all fine. And uh, yeah, we were it was it was absolutely fine for the rest of the day. And then we flew out later that uh, later that evening. But you know, Ben Wallace said that he knew he was probably on onto onto hiding to nothing. And even as he said, even as Shoigu and Gerasimov were looking at him across the table saying, you know, we, we, are, we are not going to invade. There's, this is all an exercise. He said he was pretty certain there were other people in, in a couple of offices away, somewhere in that building in the Russian Ministry of Defence, who at that very moment were drawing arrows on a map and pushing you know, markers around a board or whatever they were doing, planning the invasion. And I think it's, it's fairly safe to assume that that's exactly what was happening at the time. But no, it was a fascinating... 24-hour snapshot um, into in and out of Russia in 24 hours, but got back, uh, yeah, late, late, late that night, um, back to the RF, RF Bryce Norton, and then had to try and sort out a hire car at five minutes to midnight, and guess how that went. I must admit, Dom, I didn't actually, I didn't know that, so that's, uh, thank you, thank you for relaying all of that. I think in the lead up to the, to February the 24th this year, it's very interesting to hear a little bit from journalists, eyewitnesses, anybody really of you know what they were doing, what they saw before before the start of the full-scale invasion. So thank you for relaying all of that. Francis and Dom, there's a few more things to get through, I think. So Francis, can I bring you in now? There's more, as you said, a, a, a ton of diplomatic updates you, you want to relay. Can you carry on? Thanks, David. Yes, no shortage of things going on in the political arena today. So Russia have said this morning that they want to take ties with China to a new level and are looking forward to face-to-face talks with Beijing's leadership in February. I'll quote directly from Russia's foreign ministry. We are convinced that the potential for Russian-Chinese bilateral cooperation is still far from exhausted. This, of course, comes on the context of Russia aiming to reach its target of $200 billion worth of trade between the two countries ahead of uh, schedule and its desire, as I've spoken about at length, to significantly deepen its ties with Beijing. Now, interestingly, China haven't commented on these remarks this morning, but nonetheless, we know that Wang Zhi, the senior Chinese diplomat, is set to visit Moscow in February, as I say. And 
I think we can read from this that there are a lot of conversations still taking place between China and Russia, though it is revealing, I think, that China have not commented on this particular story this morning. I do just get the sense following this closely that Russia are really, really hoping for more from China, more um, positive messaging around Russia and are desperately trying to win their favour. It just feels a little bit desperate at the moment. But as I say, I don't want to read too much into that because the fact is, is I think that China are doing a lot of things with Russia, even if they may not wanting, not be wanting to make that as clear to the international community as, of course, we've broken down on the podcast uh, in the past. Just a couple of other stories as well that I wanted to touch on, which is that Poland are raising its defence budget to 4% of GDP. Very sharp increase in defence spending. Prime Minister has said that the country needs to arm itself faster in light of Russia's war in Ukraine. The country's defence budget will now amount to 4% of gross domestic product if these come about. That's predicted before the end of the year. They've already approved last week their 2023 budget, which will include the equivalent of $22.5 billion for the military which would be 3% of GDP. And obviously this is going to be a, a further percent on top of that. This is, of course, very significant because of the increasingly important role that Poland have played throughout this war. They've been a very, very vocal in their support of Ukraine and they've built themselves up into be a position of a very sizable military presence in Ukraine, more so than many powers that may have initially been perceived to have uh, to have been in fulfilling that role. And uh, indeed, I've cited a piece from Politico a few weeks ago that described Poland as Europe's new superpower. That may be taking a little bit far, but nonetheless, it's really, really incredible seeing this transformation within the Polish society as a response to the Ukrainian invasion. So there will no doubt be more on that. Just zooming out a little bit further, I just wanted to return to the Pacific briefly. I spoke about Jens Stoltenberg a moment ago, NATO Secretary General, and he is in South Korea at the moment and has told and urged South Korea that it should increase its military support to Ukraine, citing other countries that have changed their policy of not providing weapons to countries now that are seeking to do much more. He's thanked South Korea for its non-lethal aid to Ukraine, but it says there's an urgent need for ammunition in particular and how quite a remarkable quote this, if we don't want autocracy and tyranny to win, then the Ukrainians need weapons. That's the reality. This matters, of course, for South Korea and for Japan as well, which we've talking about, spoken about at length recently, that the war in Ukraine is seeing seen potentially in the context of what could happen in Taiwan and what the ramifications of that would be for the Pacific theatre. So, all of this needs to be seen in the context of new alliances being forged, particularly between the West and democracies in the Pacific that could be that are there to buttress against China taking advantage of perhaps certain uh, gaps in alliances or certain things being allowed to fall by the wayside. So, again, quite interesting. And just finally, staying on the Korean Peninsula quite struck by the remarks, uh, predictable remarks, but nonetheless interesting, I think, uh, that have come out of North Korea today. They've slammed Washington's decision to supply Ukraine with tanks, claiming that the US is further expanding the proxy war. I'll read the quote in full from the sister of Kim Jong-un, Kim, Jong Kim Yo-ayong, who is and I'll read it in full. Lurking behind this is the US sinister intention to re realize its hegemonic aim by further expanding the proxy war for destroying Russia. Now, why this matters? Well, it shouldn't come as a shock because, as we've spoken about at length, Russia and North Korea have been working quite closely since the war began. North Korea have been providing all sorts of um, 
not only not not so much manpower but me, the means to produce via manpower quite sizable things for for Russia in order to fight this war but also it speaks i think to the manner in which Russia has so few allies left that it's requiring North Korea to be the one that peddles its narrative to the international community normally you'd want it to be somebody who perhaps is a little bit more closely uh Uh, not aligned what deals with western powers more closely but the fact is they're having to make do with north korea and i think that's very very revealing as to the state of russia at the moment i'd like to come a little bit more i'd like to come again to to russia in a moment um but i i'll take a pause there because i'm aware i've been speaking for quite a while and there's probably others who want to feed in a few thoughts on some of these no, not at all. Just before we bring in James to add some more comments on Poland, just to say on, on the on the updates you talked about on Japan, just a, an interesting update from, from myself. Um, it was very nice. Obviously, long-time listeners will know I spoke to Liubov from the Tarashevchenko Museum over Christmas as a two-parter looking at the life and times and works of Tarashevchenko and his place in Ukrainian culture. And uh, Liubov actually messaged a few days ago to say that the Japanese ambassador had been in to, to, to see the museum and he'd heard about it on an English-speaking podcast. So thank you very much, Lubov, for first of all, for talking to us. And uh, we really hope that the visit from the Japanese ambassador went, went well. James, you wanted to add a few thoughts on Poland. Yeah, I think Poland's a really sort of interesting country, especially, you know, when it comes to Europe and the, the, the European Union. I mean, uh, back during the financial crisis, Poland was one of the few European countries that was actually sort of showing some growth. And, you know, it really was kind of seen as this, you know, big player, this up and coming uh, uh, force in EU politics. And that led to Donald Tusk really uh, becoming the European Council president, which uh, those of us who uh, watch Brexit will remember him. Uh, uh, well, will definitely remember him. What happened after that with Poland was was kind of quite interesting because, you know, they had this uh, uh, lurch to, uh, uh, I suppose you'd call them a, a, a nationalist, a hard right party, the Law and Justice Party. And they basically became one of the bad boys of Brussels, along with Hungary, their close ally. Poland has taken this leadership role uh, when it comes to Ukraine. And, you know, not only have they taken in more refugees than anyone else, they've been one of the sort of the strongest and most strident voices, along with the Baltics, uh, uh, for, you know, keeping up the support. And I guess the point I want to make is that when Poland wants to put its weight behind something, it can be influential and probably more influential than any of the other sort of former Eastern Bloc countries that later joined the EU. You know, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens once the Ukraine crisis does end. Uh, you know, will uh, Poland have sort of regained its taste for flexing its muscles at a European level? And uh, I think that'd be something really interesting to watch, that, that shift in the years to come. Thank you very much, James. We're just starting to keep one eye on the clock now. So, Dom Nichols, you had some updates about uh, events in Iran over the weekend. Yeah, tangentially related to Ukraine, but we need to we need to mention this. So, Iran, Saturday, twenty eighth, so just gone, a, a military munitions factory in uh, near Isfahan city was attacked. Now, I'm pausing because you may well have have, have heard of a number of different strikes on on Iran over the weekend, but. That may be conflated with the fact that there was an earthquake as well in the country, which led to some damage, including fires breaking out. So that I think some of the reports suggesting there was widespread, widespread attacks, um, I think is, is not correct. But what we do know is that this uh, this munitions factory in Isfahan was was struck. So that's all I'm going to uh, all I'm going to concentrate on. Now, reports of what actually happened there, a, a, 
they sort of vary from a very limited strike to four large explosions. But it looks as if it was the um, Iran's Defense and Armed Forces Logistics Ministry that use a facility there to produce ballistic missiles and drones. Now, the methodology of this, we're not sure. We think that there's a lot of talk about quadcopter drones, so small drones, literally about the size of well, probably probably half a meter square, really. Quadcopter, i.e., it's got four uh, four rotors, small things. I mean, they've only got limited range, as as you might as you might get the idea. So they, the thought that these could come from outside the country um, are are unrealistic, I think. But that's not, and there's a lot of speculation. Oh, this was a, an Israeli special forces team, or this is Iranian rebels, or you know, nobody really knows. I mean, it is possible to drop these things from aircraft. There are very strong suggestions. There have been very strong suggestions over the last couple of years that Israel has done a number of sort of practice runs, if you like, of F-35 to check the, uh, test the old stealth technology. It is possible for drones to be uh, deployed from aircraft. Whether or not that that is capable from an F-35, I, I don't don't know, to be perfectly honest. But So there's all sorts of speculation about what happened and where it's from. But the um, the result seems to be um, not not a huge... Not, I don't, don't think the building's been destroyed. So the Jerusalem Post yesterday on Sunday was citing Western intelligence and foreign sources, quoting uh, quote, a tremendous success. Uh, and a few hours later, the Wall Street Journal came out with a similar report saying that Israel and Mossad were behind the attack, um, citing U.S. officials. Other other um, unidentified sources have been t- uh, told Israeli journalists that the strike was, quote, specific, surgical and successful. So we don't actually know. But you know, what's the what's the context to this? Well, I mean, there have been a number of strikes in recent years against Iran's nuclear facilities in Antants. That's in July 2020, April 2021. Uh, there's been a strike against another nuclear facility at Karaj in June 21 and February 22. Um, a, a factory with about 120 drones, Iranian drones, was, was struck. Now, Israel never comments on this. A lot of people say, well, it's obvious it's Israel. I mean, we, don't, we, don't, we simply don't know. But let, um, it's it's more than likely to have been uh, to to come from Israel but we we simply don't know but the background to this is and just bear in mind a number of things here please so firstly the JCPOA the joint comprehensive plan of action the Iran nuclear deal as we as we know it which is um sanctions relief and other sort of economic inducements to get Iran to move away from developing nuclear weapons Iran always says that they are not trying to develop nuclear weapons it's peaceful um, nuclear um uh, technology and advancement and nuclear power that they are trying to develop. But the JCPOA has, has been faltering for years and it is now universally thought of as, as pretty pretty much dead. So that mechanism for you know, very, very small C controlling or coercing, inducing Iran to come to, the, to come to the table to negotiate is gone. But the problem of what to do about a nuclear-capable Iran is not dead. And the US and Israel have, have both made very public promises that Iran will never get in nuclear weapons. Those promises are still out there. So if Iran is not constrained by JCPOA, what else is there? The second context to think of is that we know uh, Iran makes drones and missiles for Hezbollah, uh, which fights, you know, fighting Israel where, wherever it can, um, and also has been making drones for Russia, or at least selling drones for Russia for the Ukrainian war. So the suggestion is that that this is this is not that that Ukraine is a tangential benefit here. Um, that this is not Israel going out of its way to to help to help Ukraine. This is more likely to be Israel's position uh, regarding its fight with uh, Hezbollah and Hamas. And 
I mean, Israel are an interesting country. They've been, they've been somewhat lukewarm in their support for Ukraine over the, over the war. But like a lot of Middle Eastern countries, they are walking a very fine line between um, the line their Western friends are pushing for a much tougher stance on Russia uh, and their, their, in their eyes, their legitimate and ongoing need to have a relationship with, with Moscow. And in Israel's from Israel's perspective, that all boils down to Syrian airspace. So Syrian airspace at the moment is largely controlled by Russia. Russia has can, can open or close it as, as it wishes. And, and Israel needs Syrian airspace open um, and has done for about the last decade. Needs it open to interdict or to dis, you know, dis- destroy those supply lines that are coming through Syria supplying Hezbollah with missiles and other other lethal lethal aid. So for the last decade or so, Israel have needed Russia's tacit um, acceptance, if not outright approval, for operations over Syria. So if if they did anything, if Israel did anything to um, to upset Russia very directly, then they would find their ability to operate in uh, Syrian airspace much curtailed, and that would 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 directly speak to their big threat which is um against hezbollah and hamas coming down from well uh, the first front from from lebanon if you like they do not want hezbollah to be to have any way of opening a second front um from syria across the golan heights so either supplying munitions that way or or building in place building military emplacements along that front they do not want israel does not want to have the prospect of two two fronts uh, against Hezbollah. So for them, it's all about Syrian airspace. And in order to do that, they have to be, um, they have to have a relationship. I'm not going to say cosy, I'm not going to say close, but they have to have a relationship, a workable relationship with Russia. So I think what's happened here over the weekend is that Israel have just sent a message to Iran saying that, you know, for the last decade, we've been spanking you as you try and push your stuff through Syria uh, to supply Hezbollah. Well, we can touch you anywhere we like. We can get you, uh, OK, these, these quadcopter drones, if that's what it is, they've not, they've not wiped out the, the factory. It looks seemingly a very, very limited strike. But it's just a message to say we can, we can reach out and touch you any time, any place that, that we want. And, of course, the, the, as I say, the wider context of that is all about Hezbollah, Syrian airspace and our relationship with Russia. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Francis, can I go to you for your final updates? And then I think we need to end. And I'd just like to hear all of your final thoughts. So Francis Dirtley. Thanks, David. Well, we always try and do as much deep dives into Russia as we can because they're so inte- the, the, the integrity of Russia at the moment is vital to, to the long-term prospects for the war. And there are a few updates in this space that have come in over the weekend that I want to update listeners on. The first is, quite interestingly, we've already spoken last week about General Gerasimov's initiatives to try and uh, change the way the war is being fought, particularly with regard to his own soldiers, how we've spoken already uh, his earlier order in order to get uh, soldiers to get a haircut and a shave. Well, there's been another interesting development from him, according to the Institute for the Study of War, which is that he has essentially declared war against Russian military bloggers who have been criticizing Russian tactics and strategies. And his way of doing this is imposing quite cumbersome new reporting rules on them. So, of course, these these bloggers have been an absolutely vital source of intelligence for Western journalists and no doubt for Western analysts as well about the mentality amongst certain core groups in Russia and the kind of conversations that are perhaps taking place amongst uh, military types within uh, the Russian army themselves. Um, but there have, of course, this is a cause for concern 
for the Russian army because they are so often critical, as we've reported about in the past. Often they're feeling that these bloggers, that are not enough is being done, that the, the army should have committed more, that there should be more mobilizations, etc. So it's quite interesting that this sort of side of criticism is being seemingly suppressed by the Russian army. Quite telling, I think. But what they're seeking to do is make these bloggers wear blue press body armor and stick to very strict embedding regulations. So I think this is really an attempt to try and stop the kind of reporting that we've been talking about for months now, uh, where we, we read the kind of insights, and the kind of conversations that are happening behind closed doors amongst uh, those who've been following this war closely within Russia. So it'll be interesting seeing the impact of that. It may not be very effective at all. It's only an attempt, but nonetheless revealing, I think. The other thing I just wanted to talk about is the Russian economy. Very interesting piece in uh, the Daily Mail over the weekend, a piece of investigative journalism by Guy Adams, who, uh, and uh, it's, he's posted about it on Twitter, but it's also a long read in the Daily Mail. And it's headlined, we went shopping in Vladimir Putin's Moscow. Here's what we found. And it's, well, frankly, quite shocking, really. Uh, the, of course, we're meant to have been having these extensive sanctions. And I've already spoken at length recently, reporting another similar kind of account of people going to supermarkets and shopping malls in Moscow and other major cities and describing how actually these places are still full. There's really no, seemingly no impact from Western sanctions, that Western um, uh, produce is still being sold, that Western products are still being sold. And this latest piece really speaks to this in the luxury element of the market. So this going around very, very high-end shopping places, found shops open, a branch of Paul Smith Design, a few doors down, a branch of Agent Provocateur, then talking about uh, just half a mile away, there being a uh, Rolls-Royce being sold at a car salesmanship. Now, Rolls-Royce, interestingly, are not meant to be supplying new cars to Russia at all. But uh, in this new showroom, they were offering five brand new 2022 models. Rolls-Royce have said that they're investigating how those cars, combined a value of about four million, have got into Russia. But nonetheless, it seems that these these luxury products are getting through, that these shops are remaining open and seemingly fully stocked. And what was interesting, a quite interesting remark quoted in the article is they obviously speak to a um, an assistant working in one of the shops. The assistant says that uh, the last shipment of new stock arrived just before Christmas. So it's not as if they've been holding on to these things for many months, just before Christmas. And a fresh one is due in March, just in time for International Women's Day. So no doubt a lot of people will have seen that over the weekend or are hearing it now and will be looking into this, not least some of the legal departments, no doubt, in uh, in some of these companies. But I think it speaks to a broad trend of what we're hearing so far, which is that for many, many people, the impact of these Western sanctions within Moscow and the major cities has been seemingly minimal. But, and this is a big but that I want to end on, the Atlantic Council, which is a very prominent American think tank in the field of international affairs, have done a really, really interesting piece of investigation into the state of the Russian economy. Now, I'm not saying it supersedes the Yale paper, which I've talked about a lot, but it does certainly go into or feel feel like a continuation of some of the themes of that paper. And I won't break it all down, but I would point listeners to read it in full on the Atlantic Council's website. And the essence of what they're saying is that Western capitals have, of course, imposed these sanctions that were supposed to run the Russian economy into the ground, but they have not had the initial effect that many people believed. But it is misguided, and this is a full quote, is misguided to use the exchange rates as the main indicator of the economy's health. 
It goes on. The war is causing Russia to spend much more than it is making in revenue. The Russian budget have a deficit of $47 billion in 2022, one of the highest since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Then it continues and talks about how Moscow can't afford to block sales to countries complying with the oil price caps, but will seek to undermine those caps by building up a fleet of crude vessels. Says that one of the options in the short term is for Russia to self-insure and to use Indian or Chinese vessels not subject to US or EU um, jurisdictions and build up, as I say, this fleet of crude vessels in the longer term that will enable them to sort of bypass, bypass the sanctions. There's also talk about a resumption of Venezuelan oil shipments uh, to the US, representing a temporary alignment of interest for both parties, potentially. And then finally, it talks about how China is becoming uh, the lead testing ground for another US economic statecraft tool, which is... Uh, Sounds rather complicated, but it isn't really, which is outbound investment screening, which is essentially uh, screening any outbound investment from the United States to China, which would ensure that U.S. companies aren't transferring technology and other valuable intelligence type things to Chinese military civil fusion companies that could be doing things within China, but also potentially passing those on to Russia. So not only does this report talk about the state of the Russian economy and that it says that it is not sustainable in the long term, but it also talks about the new tools that are being developed in response to the perceived and potential uh, attempts by Russia to supplant these um, the, the sanctions. So a really, really interesting uh, paper and one that I'm sure many people will quite find, find quite positive and in insightful in the space of of the Russian economy and one that no doubt, as I say, we will return to again. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for that. I realise we've covered um, an awful lot uh, today. So thank you, James, Dom and Francis, for all of your analysis and reporting. Um, Can we go to our final thoughts? Dom Nichols, why didn't you go first? Sure, thanks. Well, just very briefly. So uh, Francis mentioned earlier on that the Pacific is getting involved in this. Not Partly, yes. So Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General in South Korea today at the Che Institute for Advanced Studies in Seoul. He's turned to... uh, uh, he's going to see Japan as well. He's trying to strengthen ties with US allies in the, in the area. But of course, this is also set against the arms issue. South Korea making a lot of very good tanks at the moment. K2 tanks. Poland's just bought 980 uh, with a with a plan to build a manufacturing facility in Poland. So there's an option there for diplomacy to try and get South Korean capability involved long, longer term. Uh, but also, and I know it's not you know, necessarily the, the Pacific, but this comes against uh, Alberto Fernandez, the Argentine president, who speaking today, Olaf Scholz, German chancellor's in Buenos Aires with, uh, with uh, Alberto Fernandez. And he has said he's absolutely ruled out sending weapons to Ukraine. And he was asked if Argentina would send any weapons. And he said, quote, Argentina and Latin America are not planning to send weapons to Ukraine or any other conflict zone, unquote. So pretty unequivocal there. However, he did later say he wanted to help restore peace as, as, as soon as possible. It's like, OK, we well, can't really have one without the other, I would suggest at the moment. But it just shows that whilst the, the diplomatic effort around the world is increasing, there are still large, large areas for whom... The war in Ukraine, Russia's assault in Ukraine, is they're viewed as, as nothing to do with them, and the battle about values and what it means for the future of um, of, of the international model that we have at the moment, and of course Taiwan's waiting out the back of there against all of this. And um, there are large swathes of the world who who, who do not care and uh, and are not prepared to, uh, to to stick their neck out and supply weapons or make any um, diplomatic shows of support. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Sternley. 
Thanks, David. Well, there's been a lot of diplomatic and statecraft talk today. And in that vein, uh, there's been some talk recently that the only way this war ends is with the implosion of the Russian Federation itself, not merely a change of leader, but rather the disintegration of the central government with regions of the Federation, perhaps even seeking their independence. And whilst that may sound desirable to many, I just wanted to draw attention to the fact that there will be many senior Western figures who are anxious about what this would mean in practice, who are concerned about what a complete Russian implosion would actually look like. Bear in mind, Russia supposedly has just shy of 6,000 nuclear weapons. It would only take one of them to fall into the wrong hands, perhaps of a separatist organisation, for there to be potentially a serious international incident. So that's why many will be arguing that change, if or when it comes, will still need to happen within the traditional structures of the Russian state. A coup that seizes the traditional organs of power or a reformer that comes up through the system. That's what happened with Gorbachev, of course. It comes with much less risk and it's much easier to deal with a new government than it is with an entirely new state, especially one that's effectively at war with itself. So I just wanted to draw attention to that, that whilst there's been a lot of talk about this question about how this war ends, an implosion of the Russian state will not be considered a desirable outcome by many Western governments, I would argue. So all discussions about the end game of the war with regard to Russia do need to factor that in. Well, that's very interesting, Francis. I think we'll We'll definitely come back to that in the future, I think. Um, but it's interesting to hear some, some, some of your thoughts on that. As our guest, uh, James Crisp, would you like to finish the episode? Yeah, um, I mean, just wanted to add something about uh, Japan. Um, I mean, Japan obviously is, is constitutionally neutral, so it is sort of legally limited by what it can send to Ukraine. But the prime minister said relatively recently, but you know what happens in Ukraine can happen in Asia tomorrow. So they very much see a link between Russian aggression and Chinese belligerence. Uh, you know, if Russia gets away with this, will Beijing feel like it can take Taiwan, you know? And I mean, that's interesting because it's had sort of other geopolitical ramifications. You know, Tokyo is backing Britain's application to join the uh, uh, CPPT, I think it's called the trade block with uh, a lot of the Pacific nations. And that's really to reinforce this idea of the international rules-based order, the rule of law within a trade deal, and to act as a sort of a counterweight from these sort of more autocratic, anti-democratic, uh, bullying countries. So I think it's interesting how the, the repercussions uh, of the invasion of Ukraine sort of continue to, to ripple through, not just in Central and Eastern Europe, as we discussed earlier, but, you know, out to uh, Asia and the Pacific as well. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear and Isabel Bouchard. And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.